This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. As Lunar New Year celebrations continue, we travel this week to Japan to celebrate an amazing project known as the Tokachi Millennium Forest. Dan Pearson is a landscape and garden designer for whom an understanding of plant ecology, along with an appreciation for natural landscapes, inspires his designs, including that at the Tokachi Millennium Forest. Midori Shintani is the head gardener at the Tokachi Millennium Forest. Having trained as a gardener and horticulturalist in Japan and Europe, she joined the Tokachi Millennium Forest team in 2008. The project and its gardens merge a new Japanese horticulture with the existing wild nature. Midori was featured in my first book, The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants. Dan and Midori's inspiring and collaborative work at the Millennium Forest really speaks to gardeners around the globe who long to reconnect with the ecological life of the land, plants, and animals that surround them, exemplifying a new naturalistic gardening which relates closely to the immediate environment and interweaves culture, aesthetics, and horticultural traditions from both East and West. Having interviewed both Dan and Midori before, I am delighted to welcome them to Cultivating Place this week to celebrate their new book, On the Forest. Welcome, Dan and Midori. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Dan. So I'm so excited to have you both here, and I should just note for listeners off the bat that it's one o'clock in the morning, my time, nine o'clock in the evening, Dan's time, and six o'clock in the morning tomorrow, essentially, Midori's time. So the logistics of getting these two together to speak with me uh, was something of a a beautiful dance, let us say, and I just couldn't be happier to have you both with me. Uh, I'd love to start out the way I I often start out with people, Um, and I would love to have you both describe for listeners your current work with plants. Like, what what does your everyday work life with plants consist of professionally and personally right now? And why don't we go ahead and start uh, with you, Midori? Um. Nothing has changed from the beginning is that my everyday work is simply living with plants, nurturing gardens and the forest with my wonderful team, my enthusiastic people to keep the garden beautiful and trying harder to create connections between plants and the people at the Tukajimalian Forest is my passion, I can say. Yeah. And what about you, Dan? I have felt one step removed from uh, plants, I think, perversely, uh, by my job, which is designing landscapes. And so I'm um, running a studio and uh, I I tend to be office-based. And I've always gardened since I was a child. Um, I've never stopped gardening. I've always had my own garden. and in this last year of the pandemic, I have been living um, where I garden in Somerset. And I've been closer than I have been for a long, long time to the everyday experience of being able to be in contact with the plants all around me, both in the garden and in the landscape surrounding us. So I actually couldn't be happier. It's my safe place. It's where I want to be most. And I'm feeling very reconnected with it at the moment. Yeah. That's that's a, a lovely upside to this strange moment in our world, and um, I, I'm sure. And, and as I mentioned in the introduction, you and Hugh do such a beautiful thing with your dig delve uh, site and um, newsletters, and and of course, what you are doing uh, together at the Takachi Millennium Forest is beautifully portrayed in this new book. But before we get to that new book. Go back and give listeners just a little bit of a sense of where where you each came originally from in terms of your 
love of plants and what kind of sparked this as a value and passion in each of you. And let's start with you on this one, Dan, and then we'll move to Midori. I discovered the world of plants when I was probably about five. And um, it happened when my father uh, built a pond in the garden. And I watched the evolution of the life in the pond that first summer with completely wide eyes and just got totally hooked into this idea of being part of something that had its own trajectory and its own life force and did its own thing, um, but allowed you to be part of it and help steer it in a way. And we had a wonderful neighbor called Geraldine Noyes, who was a naturalist and a, a naturalistic gardener. And her garden was as importantly about the weeds as it was about the things that she grew amongst them. And she had all these wonderful stories. She was a great traveler and talked to me about where she'd found the plants. And that really instilled in me this idea of where plants came from. And it became very important to me really to understand that because I learned quite early on that if you understand where a plant lives, then you've got a much better opportunity of actually understanding how to garden it. So I had this really good head start and moved to a house not so far away um, when I was 10 with an acre of long forgotten garden, um, which had been derelict for about 50 years. And in that garden, we found all these treasures buried underneath decades of growth and clearing that garden really taught me the balance of gardening with nature because we were constantly fighting the wild garden and I learned that it's better not to fight it and to try and live with it. So I had this early good start and really those things have really stayed with me which is why it's been such an absolute pleasure to work um, with Midori in this very wild way in Japan. And that, that really takes us beautifully right to you, Midori. G give us a sense as well of your kind of lifelong trajectory with an interest in, in these things as valuable in our world. I was born and raised in a countryside in Honshu, in the center of Japan. So this is countryside surrounded by sea, the mountains and rice fields and the bamboo forest. So I uh, loved exploring the field you know, with the plants. And it is obviously my area's influence. And my family, especially with my mother, sometimes I foraged mountain vegetables and edible plants with her. I often made grass whistles, leaf masks, like you know, a lot of children <laughs> did yeah. when, when we were a child, you know, children. So yeah, that, that experience still now is uh, quite, you know, the important experience for my uh, work as a gardener, I'm sure. Yeah. Also, I, I might have told you I mean, before my, you know, the most ambitious dream of childhood was, which didn't come true yet, uh, but always campanula lantern, something like, you know, the spending time with the plants is a uh, huge, you know, uh, yeah, inspiration for my garden work. Yeah. Yeah. Midori, you told me once about being afraid of miscanthus when you were yes. a child. <laughs> yes, I told Jennifer uh, for that book and Arthur her has as well. But yes, it is very important for me. I felt very, you know, fear I, I totally was overwhelmed by the strength of plants at the moment i'm sure i agree i i totally agree with that and miscanthus is such a perfect <laughs> example of that it, and i think it it builds in us a respect for the the force and the nature of these living beings, for lack of a, of a better word, that we work with in relationship in gardens, no matter, no matter what kind of garden that might be, would, would that ring true for the two of you? I think it's very important to, as, as Midori says, to be respectful of, um, 
of your environment and and the material that you're using you know sometimes you have to encourage something sometimes you have to do the absolute opposite but it both involves uh, a degree of understanding and respect and it's a conversation you have with your plants if you want to grow them well you need to understand them and, and listen to what they want so I'd love to dive more deeply into the Millennium Forest and this project that you two have been working on collaboratively with a, a larger team for, for a long time now. Talk about the history of the forest and what the land was originally and, and how and why it became what we now know of as the Tokachi Millennium Forest. And I'll let you give us a little bit of the history, Dan. So the owner, Mr. Hayashi, who is um, the owner of a newspaper in Hokkaido, bought the land with the view to offsetting his carbon footprint for his newspaper business. And this happened in the, in the early 90s. So he was very forward thinking about having a responsibility for what he was doing with one business and and finding a way of offsetting it through acquiring a piece of land which uh, ran from flatlands and uh, agricultural plains up into the forest. So he acquired some cultivated ground, reforested spaces, and then really quite wild spaces beyond that that went up into the forest. And he employed a landscape designer called Takano, who's based in Hokkaido, to help him come up with a master plan for what would happen with this site. And they originally thought about it being a, an ecological park that would be sustainable for a thousand years, which is an extraordinary piece of rhetoric really because what does that mean it's very difficult to describe exactly how that would be achievable but when I was told about this myself when I first was taken to see the park in 2000 it really captured my imagination because of the forward thinking nature of it and the idea that you could engage with a place and think about its long-term future in such a way. So it was an extraordinary piece of conservation, as well as being something that was a good piece of business. And I was brought in to add another layer to the master plan, a garden master plan, which we started to develop over about four years. And by the time Midori arrived in 2008, we were just starting to plant the third space that we'd been working on in that time, the meadow garden. So the park has these extremely wild places with bears in the forest, but it also has these interludes which are much more intimate and gentle. A walk through woodland that you take across the streams and through a kind of magical woodland really to an open expanse where we've made a place called the Earth Garden. And then the last projects being the most cultivated places, which are the meadow garden and a productive garden and a rose garden and an orchard. And none of this could really have been possible without Midori's oversight and input and complete understanding really of the fusion that we were making between a Japanese aesthetic, a Japanese way of engaging with landscape and a very new way of gardening in Japan that was much more naturalistic than the usual approach to horticulture. And one of the things I find really interesting about this is that it is this new way of gardening and it's a new approach and the refreshing, you know, kind of foresight of the originator of it to consider this carbon offset is just such a fantastic model in our world right now. And yet it really also refers back to some very ancient 
inclinations and instincts and ways of being as well. Does that ring true for, for the two of you? Yeah. Um, originally, and Hokkaido is a land of pioneers moving from the mainland. So we just have a 150 years history. So it's quite uh, young, you know, the land in Japan. But basically, we all, you know, Japanese people has a tradition of uh, nature worship be taken over from our ancestors. And the Milner Forest is quite a symbolic uh, movement in the garden to show our, you know, the nature worship in the modern shape, I can say. And our owner, Mitsushige, she wanted to the offset carbon footprint, but you know, produced by his newspaper business. But basically, he hoped to uh, make the land a special place that we all share and to show that respect each other for nature. So that's a, I think, a fundamental, you know, theme of the Million Forest. Yeah. Um, Midori, let's stay with you and and give us a sense of just how big it is. And, you know, as you were just talking about, Hokkaido is a a large island in the archipelago that constitutes Japan and is in the northern section of this chain of islands. And tell us a little bit more specifically about the, you know, how – how hot it is in the summer, how cold it is in the winter, what kind of rainfall or, or precipitation you get so that, you know, listeners around the world get a sense of its, its climate and the conditions you're gardening in because they're, they're pretty spectacular. <laughs> yeah. The Millennium Forest is uh, located at the foot of Hidaka Mountain, mountain ranges. And then uh, that si- its size is 400 hectares. And uh, cul- the cultivated garden area uh, came in about uh, 20 hectares in that, the forest. And uh, winter especially is a dominant season. And then a uh, temperature that can reach minus 25 sometimes at the coldest. And summer, the, bout, it, the temperature, high, highest temperature can be reached to uh, 35 sometimes so it's quite dramatic you know the difference of the temperature there and the Milner forest has to wide side you know of the nature because of the heat of the foot of the Hidaka mountain so sometimes we share the site with the various wild animals right like the bears Dan was <laughs> like mentioning the- yeah <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's uh, the most you know the very careful theme in the, at, at the moment. Actually, encountering the bear is always you know be with us gardening. So it's quite a unusual situation, but that's a, that's the middle of the forest gardening. I think. Yeah, you know. it's a very strong environment. There are. Uh, vigorous streams which come down off the mountain and run through the site and in 2016 there was a typhoon and the streams literally brought boulders and debris off the mountain and washed the bridges away and transformed the space so it's um it's severe and uh midori and her team had to spend time rediscovering um the balance again once that happened didn't you Midori it was yeah. it, it, it's not it's absolutely not an average gardening situation <laughs> and at the typhoon you know disaster I I felt thankful for you know the existence of the forest the most ever I lived because if we didn't have the forest we Oh, every land would just sweat away. But the forest, I mean, especially the tree roots, you know, they kind of grab the land and protect us. So, yes, it's always facing the very wild side of the nature. Yeah, yes. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dan Pearson is the garden designer and Midori Shintani, the head gardener for the Tokachi Millennium Forest in Hokkaido, Japan. They are here to share the story of this remarkable partnership between themselves, the native mountains and forests of this northern Japanese island, and the garden that involves them all. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. You know, one of the things that I am loving the most about this conversation with Dan and Midori and the Takachi Millennium Forest Project is the way that it illustrates so completely the universal impulse to garden and the common ground that our gardens and plant love really is. East or west, near or far, man or woman, tall or short, the garden meets us there and grows us along. I'll meet you there any day. We're back now to our conversation about the Tokachi Millennium Forest in northern Japan. As we come back with garden designer Dan Pearson and head gardener Midori Shintani, they are walking us through several of the site's garden spaces. We have the forest, but we have uh, some, you know, the area of the forest and each forest has different vegetation and a different method of maintenance. And the forest called, we, we call the entrance forest. That is the part, the welcoming the visitors to the Millennium Forest. So everybody has experience to walk through that entrance forest at first. And everybody, you know, go back to their, you know, their places through that forest as well. So the same forest entrance, the coming and, you know, coming back, returning, yeah. So it's the first place that a visitor would see, and it's the last thing they they leave with in their mind as they come and go, right? Okay. Yes, native forest. Yeah, welcoming you. And uh, yeah, yes. And what would be the characteristic f- trees of this forest or the overarching atmosphere you were creating here? Uh, the... Actually, we don't have uh, the primeval forest because uh, the land has once you know, cultivated by pioneers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have the secondary forest, but the, at the entrance forest, we try to uh, keep the forest native as much as possible so that we, we don't put our hands to the forest, you know, not so much. But for example, the first garden is designed by Takan Landscape Planning. That is a forest, but the design as a garden. So we plant the, uh, to how to extend the vegetation, how much we collect seeds and make plants and return them to the you know, forest floors. So it's different, you know, the strategy to maintain the forest, I can say. And it's a place that you care for very carefully, isn't it, Midori? The um, sasa bamboo, which had taken over the secondary forest, has been controlled. And that then allows you to um, gently steer the natural plant communities which have come back in again once the bamboo has been kept at bay. So your hand in there feels apparently very light, but you have a great understanding of these natural plant communities and how they exist within the forest. And there are these beautiful braided rivers, streams, which uh, lace through that forest. So the habitats change, don't they, from moist hollows to the areas above them, um, which are slightly drier and in uh, more dappled light and less dense shade. And each of those spaces has its own little ecology, which you're gently steering and and heightening through uh, caring for it carefully. Yeah. And that that takes, you know, as you just pointed out, Dan, such an intimacy with how each of the plant groups is is growing and working and interacting with each other to know how and when to intervene. Um, Which I think is one of the great lessons that that your work there 
together is really is really modeling. So you enter the the forest garden, and is the earth garden the next one you come to? Would you like to describe that for us, Dan? Yes. So when I when I first got there, um, you walk through the entrance forest and arrived on this big flat piece of ground, which used to be a paddock, uh, a grazed paddock. And the flat piece of ground is about five hectares, and it separated you very effectively from the extraordinary backdrop of the Hidaka Mountains, which comes straight down into the landscape. And because it was this large open space, people felt very intimidated by it, and they would stop um, at the little restaurant building, which was on the edge of the woodland, and have something to eat and then return. And, and not venture any further. And one of the things I wanted to do when I first saw the site was really to get people to venture further and to take them beyond their comfort zone somehow. So I studied the way that the mountains and the foothills came down onto the flat ground and um, did a series of drawings which uh, traced their uh, horizon lines. And then we designed a, a garden called uh, the Earth Garden, which is a series of waves, earthworks, that are um, echoing the foothills and bringing the foothills right up to the very edge of the forest. And um, it catches the light, it captures the elements. Uh, in the winter, it will harbor the snow in very interesting ways. So this space that was flat becomes very dynamic and people move into it um, much more intuitively and find themselves suddenly much further into the landscape on the edge of the wild forest, for instance, or at the foot of the mountain so they can walk up. And it's much more interactive and things happen to you as you move through this space, the acoustic value within these sculpted landforms is different as you move through. So sometimes you can see, hear the mountains in a very strong way. Sometimes you can hear the, the streams to either side in a different way. Sometimes it's much more quiet than in a hollow than it is standing on the top. So it becomes this very dramatic space. And it was the first thing that Mr. Hayashi uh, saw when I produced the master plan, garden master plan for him. And he had this tremendous courage, I'll never forget. I presented it to him and within five minutes, he said, yes, let's do it. And it was a big leap of faith because it wasn't a garden. It was an environment that I was putting forward. It was on a big scale. And, and I don't think it had been done before, um, you know, in that, in that particular part of, um, of Japan. So it was um, a, a mark of his bravery, really. And I think it's, a big gesture we needed to make to reconnect us with the mountains. And there's this wonderful um, discipline in um, the art of Japanese garden making called sheke, which is the borrowed view. So in a way, we borrowed the view of the mountains and brought them closer through this landform, uh, which is one of the interludes uh, within the garden. And you you talk about this in the book with this wonderful phrase called engaging with scale and it's almost a it's almost like a I, i'm going to use this metaphor which may be inappropriate but like putting spinach in into food so that children don't taste it it's like a a holding people's hand while they move towards like much bigger nature that can sometimes intimidate us to the point where we won't go to it or or we can't approach it in a way that is not scared or overwhelmed. And you kind of take people gently, or that's the sense that I get having never been there, but reading the, the book and then hearing you talk about this, um, this audio element, the soundscape of it, the way the contours kind of embrace you as you're moving towards these, you know, really big mountains in a big area uh, was that an intention, Dan? I think I, I knew I needed to break this um, fear and to make people feel less intimidated by the scale of the place. You know, it's a, it's a big, wild place, and it's an, an agricultural landscape. 
um, that's meeting a wild forest. And somehow we needed to have a, a dialogue between these places that felt more gentle, that felt more inviting, more human in scale. And although it's still much bigger than us, it's somewhere that we recognize in terms of scale and allows us to be part of it. And it is like a kind of hand-holding device because if you can make people feel comfortable in an environment, um, they relax and they start to see things differently because they feel uh, in tune with the place. And that's one of the things that we want the Millennium Forest to do. We want to allow people to feel at ease and therefore be closer to nature and to start to think about the importance of the natural world and what we can do um, to simply enjoy it or to think about how we're going to preserve it and, and look after this environment. So in a way, the gardens are these meeting places for us um, between um, the world we've created as humans and this uh, scary natural world that lives beyond our domesticated world. And the, the gardens are, are those places that, uh, that, that exist between the two places. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dan Pearson is the garden designer and Midori Shintani, the head gardener for the Tokachi Millennium Forest in Hokkaido, Japan. They're here to share more about the story behind and the hopes for this remarkable project. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, the other thing that strikes me here in this conversation with Dan and Midori is pondering the cultural traditions that Midori shared with us about nature worship in Japan, about the nuance and granular level of detail in animism and seasonality, and how completely non-binary any of these concepts are. They're not black or white, this or that one thing or the other. They are all of this and all of that, wild and cultivated. And here we are, living at the seam, trying to make the very most of it for all involved, to balance the this and the that, the here and the there, the wild and the cultivated, so as to not lose anything. Make sure to follow Midori Dan and the Tokachi Millennium Forest on Instagram for regular views on their lives in gardens and the cultures of their places. They remind us that no matter where we are, no matter who we are, we are never alone and the land is always sacred in the garden. You can find Midori at Lilla Japan. That's L-I-L-L-A Japan. Dan is at Coyote Willow and at Dig Delve. And the forest is at Tokachi Millennium Forest. We're back now to our conversation about the Tokachi Millennium Forest in northern Japan. As we come back, head gardener Midori Shintani talks a little bit more about the ancient Japanese traditional sense of animism, of nature worship, and the concept of satoyama, which refers literally to that seam of land between wild mountains and fully farmed fields often a seam where people have established villages so as not to take up arable land with housing. More figuratively, Satoyama refers to a sense of harmoniously blending these two necessary aspects of life, the wild and the domesticated, together. Our ancestors believed that every natural you know, the element has uh, the divine you know, dwelling in that in uh, every stone, a tree, and grass, and wind, light, water, so everything. So that's uh, the basic, you know, uh, our belief, animistic spirit of the of Japanese nature worship. And Satoyama is a, a different culture uh, that which our ancestors had to 
cut into that steep mountain because Japanese archipelago has a, a lot of you know the valleys and the mountains. So they had to cut into the forest um, and to cultivate the space for living and the agriculture site. And then the nature worship has been uh, cultivated uh, by the living in that uh, nature, a natural environment, because sometimes our ancestors faced um, natural disasters and sometimes uh, that experience made them uh, their uh, owe for nature, also respect for the nature more. So that's why uh, the nature worship and the Satoyama is quite you know, connected closely, I think. And then Satoyama is uh, uh, the, the name of the secondary forest that ancestors uh, the cultivated because they respected the highest mountain area as you know the uh, divine the dwelling there. So it's quite secular the forest. So they never touched that area, but the back. I mean, backyard of a backyard forest, I can say, but, uh, the uh, particular zone uh, just behind the village is was cultivated by our ancestors for living. And then that secondary forest area uh, eventually had a beautiful, you know, uh, harmony between uh, the vegetation and the people's living. And then that, that area is called Satoyama. So Sato means village and the Yama means mountain. So, yeah. And then the way of uh, building the ideal relationship between the nature and the human is very inspirational for our modern gardening. So, And Dan, describe for, for us, you know, how that immersion in in this sort of cultural context has been or is or was for you throughout this process of, of you know, these overlays between the East and, and West and these, these concepts of intermingling wild places, human places, places that work well together. I think it's, the more you look in a way, the more as a Westerner, you realize you don't know um, when you go to Japan. Um, so it's been a long education for me and Midori has really helped to open my eyes. We spend a lot of time together when we're there together. We, I go once a year and we'll always go and look at something different, a garden or um, a maker or something that is, um, or a landscape something that is beyond the Millennium Forest really is part of the education. And one of the things that I've always really enjoyed, I first went to Japan in 1997, was this incredible attention to detail and a language for things which, a language for nuanced things which simply does not exist in the West. It might exist, for instance, with whiskey makers in Scotland, in Britain, um, and the nuance of those whiskies would be something that's revered and celebrated and worked on over decades and decades and decades. But it's not something that's commonplace. And in Japan, I think there's uh, a language which exists for these sort of places between things and um, and subtleties and nuance that I just found really fascinating. And one of the things that I said to Mr. Hayashi when uh, I was first approached to work on the project was, I don't want to make you a Western style garden. I think this garden needs to be about here. It needs to be about Hokkaido. It needs to be about this position at the base of the Hidaka Mountains. And and it needs to be about um, embracing both cultures. So I will come to you with my Western sensibility and what I've learned about naturalism in the West. Um, but I will be looking to your cultures and the way that you see things and your 
reverence for instance uh for nature and the 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 animism um the belief that there is a spirit and a life in all living things and or inanimate things and um so that really for me you know it just felt like this really interesting melting plot of things that i was interested in things that um felt very natural to discover um and it's subtle it's not um somewhere that necessarily feels like it's representing the west or or, or obviously either japanese it's just about the place I know I, we did not get to um, two more gardens, but um, the productive gardens and then the, the meadow garden sort of continue with with these uh, several of these themes. Uh, would you like to describe those uh, quickly for listeners? Um, and I, I need to just start by saying that the meadow garden would not be there if I didn't have my great collaborator in Midori because it's a very fragile thing that we've made. It's um, five more hectares, is that right, Midori? Mendogar is a one hectare. Oh, it's one hectare. Okay, yeah. I always think of it as being bigger <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> I, I looked at the forest floor when I first went there and was really hypnotized by the interconnectedness of everything and, and the layering of plants as they come through in the season. And I wanted to make a heightened version of the forest floor out in the light beyond the forest so that people could start to see those plants again in a different light. So I combined them with Western star plants, but used this idea of them being mingled in the way that they were in the forest. So looking at the plant communities really very closely as the guide and then um, using my uh, horticultural knowledge and um, know how to try and combine them in, in a horticultural way. And so we made this hectare worth of planting and I think 35,000 perennials went in when we first did that planting. And it's, it's like an ever-changing canvas. So it's very, there is structure in it within the planting, but it's something that changes almost on a daily basis throughout the growing season because the growing season is compressed there, so things happen very fast. And things are often happening together in the way that they might not back in Britain. So plants that I recognised as being companions, or also not companions throughout the course of the season, became companions because the season was compressed. And, and in a way, um, I wanted it to be a heightened experience. So Midori sends me from time to time very short emails telling me what is happening and, and one of the emails was today people are screaming in the in the meadow garden and I couldn't work out why I thought something awful happened <laughs> um, but the meadow garden became so rich in nectar that there were these uh, enormous flurries of, of butterflies that were making uh, people shriek with uh, delight uh. so it's a it's a place that is naturalistically planted it's using combinations of plants that are compatible that emerge as soon as the winter breaks um, and then carry right the way through until the winter comes back again um, at the end of the autumn. And it's a place that's very gentle. Um, it's a place that's very dynamic and it's absolutely designed to feel like a wild place. And when I met Midori in 2008, I said, let me explain about this garden, we went into the forest and stood in the forest and we looked at the plants beneath our feet. And I just talked about the way that I saw those things. And I said, this is what we're wanting to emulate in the garden. And Midori understood it very, very quickly. And I, I knew within a very, very short time that I was going to be in good hands because it was quite a scary thing to be doing to making a garden that was as free form as this at such distance. and. You simply can't do it if you don't have uh, very skilled people and people that you can talk to about what you're doing. And Midori is both those things. Um, we communicate through the garden, don't we, Midori? Yeah, yes. You know, when we started uh, the Meadow Garden in 2008, the word of naturalistic planting was not you know, well known in Japanese horticulture. So there are a few people 
understanding what we do really. So <laughs> I guess that it has been uh, always adventure with plants in a meadow garden. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And there are lovely photographs of this space in the book, and there are descriptions of the the kinds of plants and the the community of plants that you all are curating and uh, interacting with to keep this balance going. But something that Dan was just describing, Midori, really led me to wanting to ask about the idea of gardenership and how you and your team uh, are caring for these gardens there. And and I know it's an all-day, everyday, year-round activity, but could could you give listeners a sense of uh, the physicality of your of and you term it this in the book, which I just love this your gardenership there. Yes, I I, I practiced in a, both in Japan and Sweden, and it's those experiences were very different uh, each other in in wonderful way. And in Japan, as a typical, you know, the Japanese traditional artisan class, you know, so learning how we, you know, the gain the skills to move our hands, I mean, gardeners' hands quickly or beautifully and in the most efficient way. So I often uh, talk uh, to my student gardeners and young gardeners, we needed to uh, gain uh you know, the strength of the concentration, the patience and the observation, the three of, you know, the, those, the skills that are essential to become the, a good gardener. So that's what exactly I uh, learned from my apprenticeship, you know, in Japan. Yeah, and it helps uh, our gardening in every way, actually, uh, to see, you know, that when we needed to split this, you know, the perennials or when we, you know, to bring another layers in the planting mix or when we the harvest or when we prune, everything is connected to the timing, but not our timing. It's always timing for plants. So, yeah, we learn that. And do you care for the garden completely organically, uh, Midori? Yes. And, and how big is your gardening team there? Uh, <laughs> including me, uh, the garden team is uh, a full, a full time. I mean, through, throughout the year. And during the summer, we have extra two or three gardeners. So less than 10 people. It's a very small number of the team. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that designing the garden as Dan started to do and then caring for the garden and working on it collaboratively is something just slightly different than writing a book about it. And I wonder if there is a a different hope or goal for either one of you in um, after this many years, 12, 13 for Midori and longer for Dan, what are your goals with putting the book out there? And maybe let's start with with Dan. I think the the premise of the Millennium Forest is an extraordinary thing to see um, the opportunity in landscape and for it to be seen as being something that is precious and something that needs to be sustained and to create a place that is all about engaging with that idea. I think it's it's really extraordinary and through beauty and through horticulture and through a meeting with ecology and people, um, this place has somewhere, something very strong to say. And it's an idea that could be rolled out all over the world. It, it, it's something that we, I think, feel very confident about being absolutely timely right now in terms of how we need to embrace the care for our environment and to start looking at it as being something that we need to nurture and sustain um, and something that's precious and delicate and something that we can engage with really very easily through just opening our eyes to what's out there. So it really feels like a fascinating precedent, this project, and we felt very strongly about 
putting this book out there because Hokkaido is a remote place. Um, but the message behind this is something that's applicable worldwide. Yeah. And I'll ask you this before I move to Midori. Were there insights or surprises that came to you in the process of of putting the book together and the the hindsight that you might have gained in doing that versus being in the moment with the garden um, that you could that you would share with us if there were any I think when you're when you're when you're gardening something or making an environment it's um it's a completely kind of immersive process you throw yourself into being in a place and even though you know i'm a long long way away in the uk from japan um my head was very much in that space and when i was there i was very much in that space and i think when you have to try and communicate that through words and images and a story um uh in the book the story of the place i think it really is a very useful discipline in time trying to pin down those thoughts which are sometimes quite fugitive when you're working on something and um, to try and capture them put them in one place um, and to see that actually what you've done uh, as part of this team um, is collaboratively quite an extraordinary thing to do um, so it felt like a very necessary thing to do and a, and a privilege to be trying to tell this story and to step outside and do it through the book I think was a, a, a very interesting different twist on looking at the same thing all over again. And Midori what about for, for you when you think of the goals of saying okay I will work on this book with you which is a different exercise than than doing the garden or working in the garden and you know using a different vocabulary and kind of musculature in ourselves I think what what would you say were your goals of being involved in the book portion so that this could reach people around the world um at first, it, actually, originally, it was uh, supposed to be written by only Dan. <laughs> so so uh, it was obviously a really challenge to write what we do in English and in the foreign language for me. And, but I felt like quite similar manner, you know, between uh, creating a book and uh, creating a garden. It's just, you know, delightful and lovely teamwork with enthusiastic people to telling, you know, our joy or the happiness with the plants, yeah, through the garden, but through the world. So basically, I felt, you know, the similar, you know, the message there. Yeah. And what about for you? Were there surprises that, that came to you or insights that came to you in writing about it that have... Um, yeah, there are so many ideas or insight and thoughts of feeling, you know, the, in the back, you know, of the backyard of the garden, what we showing the visitors. So I think it never, you know, introduced, you know, the visually, because there is a stories, you know, the, of the gardeners you know, working every day at the place. So I think it's, it was a great opportunity to introduce what we actually, you know, think was thinking, you know, to make that beautiful garden or trying to, you know, keep the garden more beautiful and better and better. So, for example, like uh, the idea of Satoyama or inspiration from the nature, traditional nature worship, it never, you know, been introduced before. So, it was a great opportunity to communicate to people, uh, not only with the plants, that you know the backstory of the garden. So, and I discovered a lot of new things about uh, our relationship with you know, I mean, between Dan and myself as well. So, don't you think so? That was great, mm. yeah, mm. experience for us as well. Yeah. You know, 
I, I, I loved how you, Dan, shared that this year of COVID has, um, in all of its chaos and um, devastation, right, and grief, uh, it has provided this also beautiful upside of actual time for you in your own home garden. Um, with with this, uh, this idea in mind and just this last year around our globe, <clears throat> on on a variety of levels environmental social uh you know health uh concerns is there anything you'd like to add about the importance of this kind of work and engagement with our world um at this time i think um midori you must say something as well but for me i just feel um that there is this very definite feeling that people want to get reconnected with the natural world as a result of what's happened. I think we've all had to live much uh, more intimate lives, um, slower pace, uh, more confined lives in a way, and the desire to be connected to something that's beyond the pandemic that's that's rolling on without that being an issue i think was very real at the beginning and nature provided that um very handsomely by simply carrying on um in its own way um providing for us and certainly in the uk there was this really interesting thing that happened and all the seed merchants sold out of things that you could grow to eat. Um, and the pandemic started for us here in the spring. And so people started gardening again and in, um, in a way that they hadn't done before. And I think there was this very definite unreal need and um, it was met through the simplicity of gardening. And through the gardening, I think there has been this um, greater awareness of, of nature. And I think that it's something that was quite profound. And I certainly felt um, during the period I was posting Instagram posts of just little daily things that were happening, uh, the garlic coming up, the wild garlic coming up in the woods or whatever it might be. And for those people who couldn't experience that, that were living in cities, you know, I, 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 I had these wonderful um, messages from people, you know, saying thank you for sharing this. And there was a, there was a hunger for it, which um, I don't think is going to go away. I hope not. I hope not. Midori, what about you? Uh, of course, we had uh, less visitors last year and possibly it's going to be again, you know, this year. But... At the same time, we surely witnessed people trying to find the comfort in the garden and the difficult situation brought a lot of people into the garden. I mean, who haven't been interested in the garden, you know, the, that much before. So in Japan, the, the gardening has now become a very, very popular because everybody needs to stay home and but want to, you know, the touch nature. Well, I just I thank you both so much for your your voices and your work in this world. And and it was the same in in the U.S. You know, there was this real kind of re-engagement with our own survival and um, physicality in the garden for people in lockdown and. Um, the the sort of complex and nuanced and just really beautiful way you uh, encourage people to to learn more or do more in these ways in in your book and in the work there at the Millennium Forest is it couldn't have come at a better time so thank you very much for being guests on the program today uh, it's been a pleasure to see you and to speak with you thank you very thank you. much Jennifer. thank you Midori. Thank you, Zan. 
Dan Pearson is a landscape and garden designer for whom an understanding of plant ecology, along with an appreciation for natural landscapes, inspires his many acclaimed designs, including that at the Tokachi Millennium Forest. He, in partnership with Hugh Morgan, creates a weekly gardening journal, Dig Delve, documenting his professional work as well as their home gardening practice. Midori Shintani is the head gardener at Tokachi Millennium Forest, and having trained as a gardener and horticulturalist in Japan and Europe, she joined the Millennium Forest team in 2008. Dan and Midori's inspiring and collaborative work at the Tokachi Millennium Forest is fully described and illustrated in their new book, The Tokachi Millennium Forest, Pioneering a New Way of Gardening with Nature. It's out now from Filbert Press. Join us again next week when we're back stateside to visit with a longtime gardener and garden writer also engaged in a new level of relationship with her own plot of land. Paige Dickey joins us to talk more about the leaving and grieving of one garden and the getting to know and love a new garden and its nature, all of which has grown her. Her new book, Uprooted, is available now. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com. Also on the website, in this week's episode show notes, make sure to revel in the amazing photographs of the Dokachi Millennium Forest and its gardens throughout the seasons, including some lovely traditional gardening techniques and some of those bears Midori and Dan mentioned to us. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.